Hi, welcome to church today. The message you're about to listen to came from a recent gathering at our church. Be encouraged as you enjoy this message. Father, we give you thanks indeed for the undeniable, incredible, overwhelming truth that's coursed through the history of planet Earth, an event that changed all history, an event that more that is written about by ancient historians than any other ancient figure known to history. We need to pause and think about that. More information is written about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, in ancient manuscripts than any other quote-unquote famous person in all of history. I thank you that this is a living faith. Thank God, thank God, thank God. This is not some story, like Peter said, that's been cleverly crafted. This is truth. We know that hell has done everything that it could do to suppress the truth of this throughout the centuries. But the truth remains the truth today. Hallelujah. That Jesus Christ, this man who was God incarnate, you loved us so much that you sent your only beloved son to live this life as a man. And he lived a sinless life by virtue of his obedience. And you did indeed place upon him the penalty for all of our sin, our sickness, our disease, our poverty, our pain, our everything. He took it to the cross and paid the price so that we do not have to pay it today. By grace, we are saved through faith in that name, through faith in what Jesus of Nazareth did for us. Some 2,000 years ago, the power and the strength from that sacrifice still reigns supreme today to the point that whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved still now today from eternal death and hell and misery. So we give you thanks today, Father. We give you thanks. We are a grateful people. I am a grateful man, Father, for the changes you brought about in my life since I gave myself to you. And I thank you, Father, for all these gathered here who have called you by your name and have been accepted in the beloved because of your great grace. May we live lives that are honorable because of what you did for us. May we walk in the strength of your sacrifice and the strength of this resurrection in the name of your son, Jesus, in the name of your son, Jesus, in whom all power resides, we say amen, amen, and amen. Resurrection. I'm just going to read a few things, and I've got some, like I said, a bunch of things, some historical things, but I just want to read just for the moment in Acts 1, then we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 15. In the first verse, Acts 1, the Amplified Bible, this is actually Luke who wrote the book of Acts, remember? He says, in the former account which I prepared, O Theophilus, I made a continuous report dealing with all the things which Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he ascended, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had instructed and commanded the apostles, the the special messengers whom he had chosen, To them also he showed himself alive after his passion, his suffering in the garden on the cross, by a series of many 
convincing demonstrations, unquestionable evidences, and infallible proofs appearing to them during 40 days. Everybody say 40 days. Appearing to them during 40 days and talking to them about the things of the kingdom of God. And while being in their company and eating with them, he commanded them not to wait, not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, of which he said, you have heard me speak. Think about that. For 40 days, you need to let that resonate. Now turn to 1 Corinthians 15. You got a Bible? Hallelujah. And we're going to look just at verse, we're going to read several scriptures here again. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is speaking, verse 1 of of, uh, 15. And now, he said, let me remind you, since it seems to have escaped you, brethren, of the gospel, the glad tidings of salvation which I proclaim to you, which you welcomed and accepted, and upon which your faith rests, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast and keep firmly what I preached to you, unless you believed at first without effect and offer nothing. For I passed on to you, first of all, what I also had received, that Christ the Messiah, the Anointed One, died for our sins in accordance with what the Scriptures foretold, that he was buried, that he arose on the third day as the Scriptures foretold, and also that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. Then later... Think about this. Later, he showed himself to more than 500 brethren, the majority of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep in death. In other words, Paul says, you don't have to believe me. He said, he appeared to some 500 people, and most of them are still alive. Go ask them if you don't believe what they saw and witnessed firsthand. Verse 7 then says, Afterward he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, the special messengers. And then Paul says, And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one prematurely born. Now jump down to verse 11. Then Paul says, So whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed, what you adhered to, what you trusted and relied on. But now if Christ the Messiah is preached as raised from the dead, how is it that some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not risen. And if Christ has not risen, then our preaching is in vain, it amounts to nothing, and your faith is devoid of truth, it's fruitless without any effect, it's empty, it's imaginary and unfounded. We are even discovered to be misrepresenting God, for we testify of him that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, in case it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is mere delusion. It's futile, it's fruitless, and you're still in your sins. You're under the control and the penalty of sin. And further, those who have died in spiritual fellowship and union with Christ have perished and are lost. 
If we who are abiding in Christ have hope only in this life, and that is all, then we are of all people most miserable and to be pitied. But the fact is, listen to this, the fact is that Christ the Messiah has been raised from the dead. Amen? And he became the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in death. For since it was through a man that death came into the world, it is also through a man that the resurrection of the dead has come. For just as because just as because of their union of nature and Adam all people die, so also by virtue of their union of nature shall all in Christ be made alive. Hallelujah. I'm just going to read, like I said, because of time. I want to read some things. This, uh, I got a lot of different stuff over the years, but this is, you know who Josh McDowell is. He wrote the book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And I'm just going to read from some of this. Is the New Testament reliable? It's Kevin's fault. Is the New Testament reliable? Because the New Testament provides the primary historical source for information on the resurrection, Many critics during the 19th century attacked the reliability of these biblical documents. By the end of the 19th century, however, archaeological discoveries had confirmed the accuracy. Now, you can already think that. Like I said, we had a study when I was in Bible school called Wagon Loads of Evidence, and they talked about why there are not as many great archaeological digs as there used to be back around the turn of the century, what have you, turn of the 20th century, what have you. And they said that in reality, whether they knew it or not, in the forms or in the documents of what they hoped to discover in these archaeological digs, that many of them would have disproven some Bible fact. But in every single case, I mean, this guy brought over, I don't know how many documents, in every single case of archaeological history done in the East, done over there in Bible lands, every single find wound up documenting as absolutely correct what the Bible had to say historically in any other ways. I mean, science, in other words, began to see. And so that's one of the reasons there's not any, nowhere near as many digs nowadays as far as in that area. By the end of the 19th century, however, archaeological discoveries had confirmed the accuracy of the New Testament manuscripts. Discoveries of early papyrus, you know, papers, you know, what they wrote on, bridged the gap between the time of Christ and existing manuscripts from a later date. Coinciding with all of the papyri, the papyrus discoveries, an abundance of other manuscripts have come to light. Today, there are over 24,000 copies of New Testament manuscripts that are known to be in existence today. The The historian Luke wrote of authentic evidence concerning the resurrection. Sir William Ramsey, who spent 15 years attempting to undermine Luke credentials as a historian, and to refute the reliability of the New Testament, fully finally concluded, quote, Luke is a historian of the first rank, and this author should be placed along with the very greatest of all historians. This is the guy that wanted to, one of the people that wanted to disprove it. And a fellow named E.M. Blakelock, who was professor of classics at Auckland University, said, I claim to be a historian. My approach to classics is historical. And I can tell you that the evidence the historical evidence for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ is better authenticated than most of the facts of all ancient history. Hallelujah. Background. The New Testament witnesses were fully aware of the background 
which the resurrection took place, against which the resurrection took place. The body of Jesus, listen to this part, the body of Jesus in accordance with Jewish burial customs was wrapped in a linen cloth and about 100 pounds of aromatic spices mixed together to form a gummy substance was applied to the wrappings of the cloth about the body. After the body was placed in a solid rock tomb, an extremely large stone was rolled against the entrance of the tomb. Large stones weighing approximately two tons were normally rolled by means of levers against the tomb entrance. A Roman guard of strictly disciplined fighting men were stationed to guard the tomb. This guard affixed on the tomb the Roman seal, which was meant to, quote, prevent any attempt at vandalizing the sepulcher. Anyone trying to move the stone from the tomb's entrance would have broken the seal and thus, and thus incurred the wrath of the Roman law. But three days later, the tomb was empty. The followers of Jesus said he had risen from the dead. They reported that he appeared to them during a period of 40 days, showing himself to them by many infallible proofs. Paul the apostle recounted that Jesus appeared to more than 500 of his followers at one time, the majority of whom were still alive and who could confirm what Paul wrote. So many security precautions were taken with the trial, crucifixion, burial, entombment, and sealing and guarding of Christ's tomb that it becomes very difficult for critics to defend their position that Christ did not rise from the dead. Consider the facts. Number one, the broken Roman seal. As we have said, the first obvious fact was the breaking of the seal that stood for the power and the authority of the Roman Empire. The consequences of breaking the seal were extremely severe. As it were in that day, the FBI, the CIA, MI6, of the Roman Empire were called into action to find the man or the men who were responsible. If they were apprehended, it meant automatic execution by crucifixion upside down. People feared the breaking of the seal. Jesus' disciples displayed signs of cowardice when they hid themselves. And Peter, one of the disciples, went out and, of course, as we know, denied Christ three times. The large stone being moved. On that Sunday morning, the first thing that impressed the people who approached the tomb was the unusual position of the one and a half to two ton stone that had been lodged that had been lodged in front of the doorway? All the gospel writers witnessed it. Clark Pinnock, uh, the lead historian of McMaster University, said there exists no document from the ancient world witnessed by so excellent a set of textual and historical testimonies. Skepticism regarding the historical credentials of Christianity is based on totally irrational bias. Now, those who observed the stone after the resurrection describe its position as having been rolled up a slope away, not just from the entrance of the tomb, but from the entire massive sepulcher. Now, this is stuff that's proven in all these, like I said, in some of these other 24,000 documents about this time and things that were written by Josephus, Justin, Clement of Rome, and others who were church fathers who were alive at that time after his death. Those who observed the stone after the resurrection describe its position as having been rolled up a slope away, not just from the entrance of the tomb, but from the entire massive sepulcher. In other words, somebody picked it up, didn't just roll it away. It was picked up and moved up a hill. Hallelujah. No, no guys, no men did that. Do you understand? It was in such a position that it looked as if it had been picked up and carried away. Now, I ask you, if the disciples had wanted to come in and tiptoe around the sleeping guards, 
and then roll the stone over and steal Jesus' body, how could they have done that without the guard's awareness? Well, they couldn't have. Grave clothes tell a tale. In a literal sense, I'm just reading some of this. There's so much more. In a literal sense, against all statements to the contrary, the tube was not totally empty because of an amazing phenomenon. And remember how, like I said, a hundred pounds of spices were taken and mixed with this gummy substance and wrapped around the linen cloth that was around the body of Christ. This is the way they embalmed him at that time. And you'll have a think of that while I read this. The tomb was not actually empty because of an amazing phenomenon. John, a disciple of Jesus, looked over to the place where the body of Jesus had lain, and there were the grave clothes in the form of the body, slightly caved in and empty. In other words, there was this cocoon-like thing that was left. And that's what some of the words mean when you study this stuff out in the Greek where it was written. Let me keep reading. It says, it was in the form of a body slightly caved in and empty like the empty chrysalis of a caterpillar's cocoon. That's enough to make a believer out of anybody. John never did get over it. The first thing that stuck in the minds of the disciples was not the empty tomb, but rather the empty grave clothes, undisturbed in form and position. See, we just see, like they showed on that little video, we just see a sheet laying there. It wasn't a sheet laying there. There was a form like a cocoon in the shape of his body. Well, that would move me too. Over 500 witnesses, several very important factors are often overlooked when considering Christ's post-resurrection appearances to individuals. The first is the large number of witnesses of Christ after the resurrection morning. One of the earliest records of Christ appearing after the resurrection is by Paul. The, the apostle appealed to his audience's knowledge of the fact that Christ had been seen by more than 500 people at one time. Paul reminded them that the majority of those people were still alive and could be questioned. Dr. Edwin Yamochai, associate professor of history at Miami University in Oxford, emphasizes, quote, what gives a special authority to the list of witnesses as historical evidence is the reference to most of the 500 brethren still being alive. St. Paul says, in effect, if you do not believe me, you can ask them. Such a statement is an admittedly genuine letter written within 30 years of the event is almost as strong evidence as one could hope to get for something that happened nearly 2,000 years ago. Let's take the more than 500 witnesses who saw Jesus alive after his death and burial and place them in a courtroom. Do you realize that if each of those 500 people were to testify for only six minutes, including cross-examination, you'd have an amazing 50 hours of first-hand testimony? Add to this the testimony of many other eyewitnesses and you would well have the largest and most lopsided trial in all of history. The resurrection is a fact. Professor Thomas Arnold, for 14 years, a headmaster of rugby, author of the famous History of Rome book and appointed to the chair of modern history at Oxford, was well acquainted with the value of evidence in determining historical facts. This great scholar said, quote, I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind, think about this, I know of this, you know, form one of the foremost historians in the world, 
I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God had given to us that Christ died and rose again from the dead, unquote. Brooke Foss Westcott, an English scholar, said, quote, raking all the evidence together, it is not too much to say that there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. Nothing but the antecedent assumption that it must be false could have suggested the idea of deficiency in the proof of it. Real proof that disciples' lives. And here's one of these things that we've shared before, but you, this is what really I hope it'll, it's, you, that you think about it and that it strikes your heart. We have a living faith, like I said. This Bible has been substantiated throughout all history as true. Scientifically, archaeologically, historically, and the proof is to be in our lives today. The whole reason we come together as a church anywhere in the world think about this, the very heartbeat and reason that we come together as a church is based upon the fact that we serve a Savior who died and was resurrected. Remember, no other quote-unquote religion, none of them, none of their so-called leaders are alive today. They're dead, they're dust, they're gone. This is the only faith that has literally influenced the entire earth to the effect that it has. This is why hell works double time, overtime, triple time to try to quench the truth of what God has done in Christ by raising him from the dead. Again, in a Bible school, even when I was... uh, uh, principal of this Bible school, you know, we took six months. We taught for six months on the resurrection about what scripture says throughout it, about how everything in our faith is based upon this primal truth. Our God was raised from the dead. Hallelujah. Now, then let me read this. You hear real, the disciples' lives. But the most telling testimony of all must be the lives of those early Christians. We must ask ourselves, What caused them to go everywhere telling the message of the risen Christ? These 12 apostles, remember, they selected another one, Matthias, after Judas left, who had to be a witness to the resurrection. Like I said, they had to be a witness. They had to have seen Christ after he died and was raised from the dead to be an apostle. For 40 years, these guys lived, when you average out their lives, they lived some 40 years after Christ's death and resurrection. 40 years. Did you hear me? 40 years. You've got 12 men and then all these others, some 500 or so. And remember in those days, you're talking about a village. A village was normally like 110 people. You're talking about maybe five or six entire villages where Jesus went around and showed himself alive. It says, remember, he was with them for 40 days, eating and drinking with them. That would have been a nice dinner. Can you imagine going from place to place, and he's just walking in, and he sits with you, and you know he died, you saw him die, and he is alive, and he's yet right here with you, 
and he sits down at a table with you. He sits down on these pillows and he partakes of a meal with you and he talks about the kingdom and he talks about what's going to happen. Can you imagine the faith that went into them? Seriously, listen. If one of us, if we consider whosoever in this church, if don't want to, you know, deadly somebody, I don't know, I could do David. If, if David, you know, God forbid, if David died, it would upset Denise, although she'd take all his money. <laughs> but if David, if we saw him die, remember in those days, right out here like Marble Arch, you know, like one of that, that one arch that stands out there by itself. I don't know if you know the history, but that one arch that sits out there by itself, the reason it sits out there by itself is because the architect who made it made a mistake and made it six inches too narrow for a carriage to go through, and the king hung him on it. He was executed right there. If David was executed, and we all witnessed that, and then three days later, David walks in here and says, let's have lunch. I mean, think about, think about the impact. I mean, I'm trying to say the word of God has to come alive to you. We, our faith is not, like Peter said, it's not based upon a cleverly told story. If you want to, you can take the time for yourself, like many people have, and search these documents out for yourself. But when it's all said and done, God still says it's required of you that you have something called faith. Without faith, it's impossible. Then we know that Jesus himself said, you know, after Thomas said, I won't believe until I see. Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. This is where you and I are living at an acute moment in time, whereas God is about to do something so phenomenal in our very near future. But all of it, the faith of it comes because the man who's teaching us in the four gospels actually died for us, and God actually raised him from the dead for us. That's what gives me the strength and the hope and bless God the determination to walk this stuff out of my own life because suddenly you believe. He died for me. And the reverence for the incredible, the horrific death that he went through produces in you this desire to bless God, take advantage of everything that he did die for. I want, therefore, to possess anything and everything that his death and resurrection paid for because I do not want to be found frustrating this grace. This is why God wants you blessed. And again, all manner of stuff has been taught and people have got wrong and got off in areas of extreme and all manner of areas. But when it's all said and done... We are to be witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. I'm telling you, in every area, your physical body, he took your sickness, he took your diseases, he took your pains, and bless God, he did take your poverty. He wants you blessed in your pocketbook. Do not think that is some false doctrine. He wants you and I to be above and not beneath in every given area. But you have to have this so cemented and absolutely just finalized in your heart. I serve the living truth. This truth 
is bigger than any other truth. There is no truth but this truth in reality. This is not some fact that's momentary. He died for me. God raised him from the dead so I might be set free. And bless God, I am free. I have eternal life. I started singing this morning. Most of you are too young, but I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, yet shall he live. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never, never die, shall never, never die. John 11. I am the resurrection. Lazarus, Martha, my God, Jesus, if you had been here, if you had been here, he would not have died. And he turns and he looks at her and he says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whosoever believeth on me shall never die. See, I'm never going to die. I said, I'm never going to die. Will my body lay down one day? Absolutely. But Rod, me, I'm never going to die. My wife's never going to die. Rod and Julie are going to live forever in eternity with the most loving, gracious, giving, amazing, smiling, happy, joy-filled, dancing God that you can imagine. Because whosoever liveth and believeth in him shall never die. But the most telling testimony of all must be the lives of those early Christians. We must ask ourselves, what caused them to go everywhere telling the message of the risen Christ? Had there been any visible, had there been any visible benefits accrued to them from their efforts? Did they have, did they get prestige or wealth or some increased social status or material benefits from this? We might logically attempt to account for their actions for their wholehearted, in other words, if any of that happened, that might account for their actions for their wholehearted and total allegiance to this risen Christ. But no, as a reward for their efforts, however, these early Christians were beaten for 40 years, stoned to death, thrown to lions, tortured and crucified. Every conceivable method was used to stop them from talking about this God who was resurrected. Yet they laid down their lives as the ultimate proof of their complete confidence in the truth of their message. Forty years. Some forty years. Uh, and again, you've got to let this become real. Forty years these guys walked this out. And uh, I put some posts or saw some posts the other day up on uh, Facebook from Charles Colson from years ago and I think you've seen it. He said, you know, when Colson went through all this stuff, the Watergate scandal in America and government, and he said that he's, he's been an attorney for all this long. He said, I can tell you, he said, no 12 men, he said, could go for 40 years and live in a lie. For 40 years, never negating one word of the testimony of Jesus Christ. If any of it had been false whatsoever, any of it, he said there are no men who could go 40 years without somebody messing up 
You know what I mean? Saying, no, this is, no, that's not really what happened. No. Something impacted them so deeply, there was absolutely no doubt in their spirit. They had seen him die. And they saw him for 40 days after his death as he sat and talked with them and ate with them and drank with them and taught them about the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. And Jesus said, today we live by his words and by the words of those apostles who were his witnesses. When you read the epistles, you're reading from men who were eyewitnesses to this truth. This is why Christianity is the only faith that there actually is on planet Earth. Jesus Christ is worth living for. He is worth worshiping and praising and giving him glory. Hallelujah. Because indeed, like they said, he died. But like they said, that old statement in in Christianity, he has risen. Remember the priest would say, he is risen. And the people would say, why? He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Stand up with me. Praise your Father. We believe you've really enjoyed this message. For further information, visit www.commonwealthchurch.org and feel free to join us on any Sunday 